0: With the Queen lying in state, the level of public enthusiasm for the monarchy is being measured in a line along the Thames. What's driving people to queue? From France, I'm joined by Owen Jones. Queuing in spirit, I am sure. Today was another big day in the marathon that is the period of national mourning for the Queen. It got going when, at around half two, the Queen's coffin was marched from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall. The casket being pulled by horses, flanked by royal guards. Behind the casket is King Charles, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew, and Prince Edward. Behind them are William and Harry. Once the procession got to Westminster Hall, the Queen's coffin was laid on a platform in the middle of the room. The flag is draped in a flag called the Royal Standard. It represents the sovereign of the United Kingdom. What is happening now is that the public can go and view the Queen's coffin so as to pay their respect. People are slowly walking past the coffin on either side, some stopping to pray. That will be possible for 24 hours a day. So you can go see the, the coffin for 24 hours a day until the morning of the Queen's funeral. And organisers are expecting a lot of people to turn up. Yesterday, this was released by the government. It's a map of the potential queue to go and pay respects to the Queen. Organisers think it could reach over four miles long, going all the way from Lambeth Bridge to Southwark Park. And there were certainly some people committed to being at the front of that queue.
1: Ladies, hello, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. You've just got your wristbands. Um, Talk to me about the wait overnight last night. It was, was horrific because it was raining all the time and it was like kind of very... It was not that cold, but it was very, very... The rain makes everything bad, you know? And we didn't sleep a wink. And, like, uh, we had help from people. and uh, But it's. I don't regret nothing because this lady over there is waiting for us to to visit her. She's the greatest of the whole wide world. She's the queen of the world. And like exactly this is why I'm here. She's incredible. And I, I wish I could do more.
0: I'm not sure what more you could do for someone you've never met, by the way, than waiting out all night in the rain. The wristbands that they were referring to mean you can go in and out of the queue without losing your place in recognition that some people will be waiting for a very long time. And we can see how long that queue is right now because the Department for Culture and Media have put up a live tracker. At the moment, the queue is currently approximately 2.6 miles long. They say you can check TFL for travel info. The nearest landmark is London Bridge. So according to the government, the queue at the moment um, goes to just beyond London Bridge. So 2.6 miles long. Sky News have already been speaking to people who have been able to see the Queen lying in state.
2: It wasn't what I was expecting, I, I didn't think I'd feel so strongly about it, but I guess you never understand how much someone means when they're there, it's when they're gone that you can understand a little bit more, just the actual sight of it, someone who's served our country for 70 years, not with us anymore.
0: It's uh, a great loss. So that was from just moments ago, that Vox Pop there. Oh, and this is the part of the ceremonies where we really get to see how much commitment there is from the public. So a lot of the time I've been watching this period of National Morning, it's felt very top-down. It's felt like wall-to-wall media coverage, everything getting cancelled, and I was being told over and over again by the BBC, by politicians, that this is you know the most important thing that's ever happened and we should all be deeply in grief. As I've said on this show, I'm, I'm not particularly grieving the Queen, but I know other people are. I'm perfectly respectful of that. But this is, I suppose, now when that's all on show, how much the public do care? How long is that queue going to be? How deep is that queue going to be? Will people have to wait 30 hours to see the Queen lying in state? That's what the government are currently warning. What do you make of this?
2: Peak grief, I suppose, is what you're talking about. How deep is your queue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way of thinking about it is, Look, there's 25% of the population who are Republicans, according to the polling. Of those, only, I would say, about 15% of the population are kind of real committed. They're the ones who've said, according to polling, that they don't think King Charles will be a good king, which is a big drop in that number, even though he hasn't done anything since the Queen died. And then you've got, I would say, maybe 50% of the population who are passively just think about the monarchy, well, you know... Can't think of an alternative. They buy in often to the myth about tourism, even though only one royal palace makes it into the top 20 tourist destinations. That's Windsor Castle, which is beaten by Legoland in Windsor, which is number seven. Sorry, Windsor Castle's number 17, sorry. Uh, Windsor, Legoland number seven. But I think if you think 10% of the British population are hardcore monarchists, well, if you take the adult population, that's 50 million people. So that'd be 5 million people. Now, I actually don't think 5 million people are going to attend these events all this morning. So even not all hardcore monarchists are going to be turning up. So I don't think it's that surprising you get mass crowds like this because there is, we already knew, a section of the British population and, to be honest, a section of the tourist population, because it's true, even though a lot of tourists I don't think come to Britain purely because we've got an unelected head of state. I think that probably shows a lack of a lack of kind of belief. In what makes Britain attractive to outsiders. But a lot of people who are tourists quite like the Queen. There's a big chunk of the population in absolute numbers who are committed monarchists. I don't really think this shows that the population as a whole are ardent monarchists. And the reason I don't think that is overall enthusiasm for the monarchy has shrunk. Three million people line the streets when we have the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1951 with a smaller overall population. Will it reach three million with a bigger population? I'm not so
0: sure. The thing I'm very interested to see is how many people, if it does turn out that you have to wait 30 hours, how many people would be willing to make that commitment? Because after I did your show on Sunday, I and mean, we had a, a fun conversation talking about republicanism and and all the completely bizarre coverage of this on the press. I said I was going to go down to Buckingham Palace to see how big the, the queues really were or the crowds really were, so I went down there and. To be honest, it seemed like quite a nice day out for most people. The atmosphere was actually quite nice. You know, lots of people laying flowers, some, que- some sweet little letters from from kids. But it, it did feel like lots of people having a nice day out. It, you know, you, you had to queue for about an hour to get to, to, to Buckingham Palace. So that's a very, very doable. What I am interested to see, though, is, is when you have to give up 30 hours of your life, how many people are willing to, to queue up and see the Queen? Because that, to me, is real commitment. When I was at Buckingham Palace on Sunday, I thought, oh, this is nice enough. But, you know, this isn't necessarily lots of people who are obsessed with the Queen and who are deeply in grief. It's lots of people who, you know, presumably feel some warmness towards her, but also are thinking, well, this is an interesting day out, isn't it? We can be part of history. Whether people will queue for 30 hours is kind of a different matter, isn't it?
2: I mean, look, I think I'm not belittling the fact that there is a substantial chunk of the British population who are genuinely mourning, who genuinely feel a sense of grief. Um, I think that's a substantial number of people. But I, I also do think you've got to weigh that up against people who just like being part of a bit of history. She was queen for seven decades. That's not, She's the longest reigning British monarch. She's been queen as long as my mum's been alive. No offence to my mum, she's watching. She's no spring chicken, I don't think she claimed to be. It's a huge amount of time, the best part of three quarters of a century. You know, I think a lot of people just like to say, I was there. I went and saw the casket of the longest reigning monarch who... Is part of the national heritage. Yeah, I mean, she's someone we grew up looking at on our coins every single day. Our stamps, you know, we see kind of monarchism in various different forms, all over, you know, in various symbols, when you see a post box, that kind of thing. You know, it is something which is ingrained in our culture and our sense of identity, whether we like or or not. I happen to believe it's not something which we should have as 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 an institution. But I I just think you can't disentangle that. I just think a lot of the British population uh, just feel, wow, this is history. You know, Lots of people go and see the graves or tombs of of long dead people that, frankly, they don't even admire. I mean, Lenin's, Vladimir Lenin is a controversial figure. I'm sure we'd agree. I know lots of people who aren't Leninists who filed past Lenin's tomb. Napoleon, there's another one. If you want to go and see Napoleon in France, often long queues. I've been there myself. You know, I just think people, you know, like the sense of being part of history. They can say they were there. They can put it on Instagram and social media. I don't know what the rules are, actually, to be fair. But, I, you know, I just think you can't disentangle that, not to belittle people's sense of grief, which is genuine.
0: Obviously, I'm a Republican, but the the, the parts of these things which I, which I quite like, I quite like things where people, oh, let's be part of some collective moment that we can all remember together. You know, I'd prefer it if we weren't remembering together hereditary monarchy, which is, Sort of, uh, I think, a pretty grotesque institution, actually. But the fact that everyone's doing it together, that's why I I didn't mind going down to Buckingham Palace, actually. I'll probably wander down to the queue today. We will be talking about the cost of living crisis later on the show. Do not worry. Um, But there is so much to analyze, critique, talk through when it comes to this period of national mourning. And you can't ignore what's going on. So we are going to talk about it. This Monday has been declared a bank holiday to mark the Queen's funeral. Fair enough. But corporations and institutions have been leaping over each other to cancel just about everything. It seems less to do with respect and more projecting a public image and with little consideration for how it will affect ordinary people. By far the worst instance here is the decision by some NHS hospital trusts to cancel appointments for surgery, maternity checks and even some cancer treatments. This is at a time when waiting lists are at a record high. At the end of July, nearly 7 million patients were waiting for an appointment, and nearly 400,000 of them have been waiting for over a year. As one doctor told Open Democracy, I imagine most of the doctors would be happy to just ignore the bank holiday, but we are totally reliant on a huge team of people paid minimum wage and treated like shit, like porters and cleaners, and I imagine they will take a bank holiday if offered as I would in their position. Also a problem is the closure of food Banks One in Suffolk tweeted this, our service will be closed on Monday the 19th of September to mark our respect on the day of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's state funeral. Wimbledon also followed suit, though they changed their mind when volunteers stepped up to keep it open. There were other announcements of closures in Bristol, Stockport and Stoke-on-Trent, and I think all around the country, in fact, food banks are closing. Now, of course, I have no doubt that food banks and hospitals do face a difficult choice here. A last-minute bank holiday was declared, and their staff need breaks too. Other more corporate closures, though, just seem silly. View Cinema have said that on the day of the funeral, they will be showing the funeral. They've titled it In Memoriam, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's funeral they say we will be screening the funeral of her majesty the queen elizabeth in selected uk venues on monday live from 10 a.m seats will be free of charge and our retail offering on this day will be limited to complimentary bottled water during the broadcast with no other snacks or drinks available for purchase on this day or we'll be not showing our normal program of films and what i like here is you can see release date 19th of september 2022 and then you can also click to read the full synopsis of the queen's funeral Most other cinema chains are closed altogether, as are fast food chains like McDonald's. One of the funniest, though, funniest closures, is Centre Parks. So, on Tuesday, they put this out. Following the announcement of the date of the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, we have made the decision to close all our UK villages on Monday, the nineteenth of September, at 10am as a mark of respect and to allow as many of our colleagues as possible to be part of this historic moment guests who were due to arrive on that Monday should not travel. We will reopen on the Tuesday to welcome guests. All impacted guests will receive an email from us today. Please visit our website for additional information. So at less than a week's notice, and when everything is shutting down, people were asked to change their travel and accommodation plans. What about people who were due to already be there on that Monday? This is how Centre Parks answered. Hello, Leanne. If you were staying with us for seven nights starting Friday, you are welcome to leave your belongings in your lodge and access your accommodation again from 10 a.m. Tuesday. Thanks, Demi. So the, the people at Centre Parks were, were kind enough to suggest that though you will be kicked out of your holiday cottage for 24 hours or so, at least you can leave your stuff there. There was then a completely predictable and pretty justified backlash and Centre Parks responded like this. Hi, Liz. We recognize leaving the village for one night is an inconvenience. We have listened and made the decision to allow guests to remain on village on Monday. However, the village will still be closed, so guests will need to remain in their lodges. So this is now Centre Park's jail in respect of the Queen. But a short time later, realizing that Centre Park's jail wasn't particularly good for PR, I assume, or maybe it's fire hazard, I suppose, they then clarified apologies for my wording you will be allowed to walk around the village but the facilities will be closed thanks amy owen there is obviously i mean there has been some discussion on, on twitter sort of saying actually it's a bit harsh to make a big fuss about food banks closing because this has been a declared a bank holiday if you work in an office you'll be taking a bank holiday and no one is trying to guilt you to not have that day off but if you work in a hospital or a food bank suddenly you're supposed to feel guilty for having a bank holiday off at the same time maybe this is a reason why we shouldn't have last-minute bank holidays. And then you've also got all of these corporations who are clearly just virtue signaling. It's completely bizarre and doesn't have any justification at all other than them being terrified that someone might say, you're not monarchist enough. How should we make sense of all of this?
2: We've got less bank holidays in this country than almost any of the comparable Western nation. So I think more bank holidays would be great. I'm sure you'll remember, you will remember, many of your viewers will remember that Labour under Corbyn promised to have four extra bank holidays, one for each constituent nation of the United Kingdom, but that you prepare in advance because you obviously know when the bank holiday is coming. I've done a shout out on social media, writing a column about people in precarious conditions who've just very abruptly had their income slashed with no ability to prepare in advance. I mean, what we're seeing is what happens if you get a very sudden abrupt national event declared colliding with an economy which is both precarious, defined by insecurity, low paid, and a cost of living crisis, which is already driving people into immense hardship. So, you know, I've talked to all sorts of people, you know, a kind of very diverse range of professions from musicians to driving instructors, Uh, people, for example, supply teachers, that kind of thing, who were due to be working on that Monday, and now they're each often losing 250, 300 quid. There's no ability for them to prepare for that at all. Some longer, by the way, because what is happening is some companies are going beyond what the government have said. There's no government advice to just cancel things outside of a bank holiday and you know are canceling other things in advance, which is leaving lots of people all of a sudden in, in the lurch. They can't, you know, they're, they're people on low paid or insecure zero hour contracts. They've got families to feed. You know, their living costs aren't being suspended. Their bills aren't being suspended. Their kids' needs aren't being suspended. But their incomes are. And I think, you know, whilst we, I think, rightly campaign for bank holidays, what we're seeing here is actually a kind of total shutdown, by the way, which in in lots of ways goes beyond lockdown. I mean, McDonald's drive-thrus. Still carried on during lockdown. I'm not suggesting those are necessary pillars of British civilization, but I think that just goes as far to show what a total shutdown Monday will represent. And frankly, lots of companies are just scared that a bunch of right wing newspapers will just burn them alive. You know, they're, they're thinking it's better to overcompensate than to undercompensate, but that's leaving a lot of workers in the lurch.
0: McDonald's closing on that bank holiday Monday doesn't feel like, I mean, I might be wrong you could ask on on, on Twitter people sort of inside information on this, but it doesn't feel like this is something which is being driven by the McDonald's workforce who are saying, please give us this this Monday off. It seems more like the PR team are terrified that a right-wing newspaper, as you say, will have a go at them if they're serving Big Macs while the Queen is being, was she actually buried on
2: Monday? Good question, she's buried on Monday. Um, while, I, I while the ceremony
0: injured. is going on, she is being buried on Monday, apparently.
2: Yeah, it makes sense to be really weird for going through all of this, she's not even buried. Yeah, Centre Parks, I think, <laughs> you know, is a really striking example because I don't think they're going to win. They're not going to clean up at the PR Week Awards 2022, let's be honest with you. It's been one PR disaster after another. And when they kept changing what they were doing, they didn't do it as public statements, just as replies to random users. The whole thing's bizarre. But what their argument was, we want our colleagues to be able to take part in this kind of national mourning. And I guess I just question to the degree, particularly a lot of the low-paid workers I've been speaking to, okay, a lot of them probably are disproportionately not ardent monarchists. They probably disproportionately wouldn't be getting in touch with me if they were. But nonetheless, their their view is, look, whether or not we want to mourn or not, we don't have any say in whether we lose 250 quid when our bills have gone up and we've got kids to feed. And that's the problem. You know, I, I mean, I presume Centre Park staff will be paid. But lots of zero-hour contract workers, insecure workers are not going to be paid. Some of them may be genuinely mourning, some of them won't, but they're certainly going to be mourning the loss of income and the impact that's going to have on their lives.
0: We will be working on Monday, so you can tune in to Hour at 7pm if you're going a little bit mad from all of the royal wall-to-wall coverage. Make sure, though, you do stock up on food supplies on Sunday because it might be impossible to get anything on the day. Let's move on to a completely different story on the cost of living. The UK government's solution to the cost of living crisis is to freeze energy bills for two years at £2,500. It's a big move, costing £150 billion. However, it will still leave many people struggling. Even though they're now capped, energy bills will still be double what they were last year, and other expenses like food and rent are also increasing by enormous percentages. That means that despite Truss's plans, it will still be a tough winter. Truss is not the only leader in the UK, though, and we are already seeing examples from the devolved nations as to how she could go further to help people get through these hard times. Let's start in Scotland, where last week First Minister Nicola Sturgeon unveiled these plans.
1: In what is perhaps the most significant announcement I will make today, I can confirm to Parliament that we will take immediate action to protect tenants in the private and in the social rented sectors. Signing Officer, I can announce that we will shortly introduce emergency legislation to Parliament. The purpose of the emergency law will be twofold. Firstly, it will aim to give people security about the roof over their heads this winter through a moratorium on evictions. Secondly. The legislation will include measures to deliver a rent freeze. The Scottish Government does not have the power to stop your energy bill soaring but we can and will take action to ensure that your rent does not rise. Presiding Officer, by definition these are temporary measures but they will provide much needed security for many during what will be a difficult winter. We envisage that both measures will remain in place until at least the end of March next year. And crucially, I can confirm that we will time the emergency legislation to ensure, subject of course to Parliament's agreement, that the practical effect of this statement is that rents are frozen from today.
0: Sturgeon's announcement came two days before Liz Truss unveiled her energy policy, which will apply to all of the nation's though at the time the outline of Tross's plan was already in the press. It means that landlords won't be able to jump the gun on possible interest rate rises by pushing rents up or use their tenants to offset their own increased expenses. That's something this Scottish landlord, who rents out six properties, told the Telegraph she had intended to do. I was sympathetic to my tenants during COVID and I didn't increase rents at that point, Before that, interest rates were historically low, so I have not raised my rents for quite a long time. With inflation and the cost of servicing the debt going up, I am going to have to look at rent increases because mine are now below market rents. With the cost of living for ourselves, everything in our life is going up, but we're now at the stage where we're able to take less and less out of the business, and it's only about breaking even. It's only about breaking even, even if you ignore that the values of your properties are growing year on year. Like most landlords, Janet seems annoyed that her tenants are only paying her mortgages. She wants them to fund her lifestyle too. Alongside the moratorium on evictions and the rent freezes, the Scottish government has also frozen fares on ScotRail, which was brought into public ownership earlier this year. And they've increased the Scottish child payment by £25 from November, while extending free school meals to primary six and primary seven pupils. Those are generally 10 and 11 year olds in Scotland. All primary school pupils below that age already get free meals automatically. So that was Scotland. Meanwhile, the Welsh government, which has far fewer powers than Scotland, has begun to roll out its plan to provide free school meals to all primary pupils by 2024. First Minister Mark Drakeford said, When we devised the policy, we didn't realise we would be facing inflation at rates beyond 10% and the reality that families across Wales are going to be facing very difficult winters. But if a single child in a family is now able to have a free school meal every day, that's £15 a week, released back into the budget of that family, that can mean the difference between managing and not managing. So it is a contribution alongside other things we are doing to help families get through this winter. The Welsh Government has also reintroduced the Winter Fuel Support Scheme, which will pay an additional £200 to eligible households on top of any UK government payments. Unlike Wales and Scotland, Northern Ireland hasn't been able to put in place any additional measures because it hasn't had a government since the DUP refused to work with Sinn Féin. It also means that the only UK nation doing worse in England is the one that currently doesn't have anyone in charge. I mean, I don't want to pretend things are perfect in Scotland or Wales. People are still going to be having a pretty difficult winter in both of those nations. But the governments there do seem to be making more of an effort than the government in Westminster, don't they?
2: Look, these are kind of pretty sensible social democratic measures within the confines of the powers available under devolution. And, you know, look, a lot of people in the Labour Party, not just on the Labour right, on the Labour left, find it difficult to say anything complimentary about the SNP. And the SNP are not a left-wing movement. They are a nationalist movement. They, They politically, you know, are shapeshifters. They went from, before the financial crash, upholding Ireland with low corporation tax as their model, and then swiftly pivoted to you know, to the Nordic kind of model. And they remain very contradictory. John Swinney, for example, is someone economically who's not left-wing at all, and you know, one of the most powerful figures within the SNP. Nicola Sturgeon's a bit more politically ambiguous. But the fact is, even though they're a cross-class alliance with all those contradictions within them, the movements within Scotland, not least the renters' movement, have had huge success in getting the SNP to enact that some of these powers that are available to them. And I think it is important to talk about that grassroots pressure. I don't think the SNP would have you know, just woke up one day and thought, oh, we're going to freeze rents for a laugh. There has been a very highly active movement within Scotland which deserves plaudits for using the power available. But they were pushing it an open door, which clearly isn't there in Westminster. There was an ideological block. It's interesting, actually, Michael Gove, Not a comrade, just should I emphasise. But apparently one of the reasons that Boris Johnson's lots fell out with him is because they thought he became too sympathetic to private tenants over landlords. And that just goes to show that, you know, within the Conservative government, where, you know, landlords' vested interests are heavily represented, the huge number of Conservative MPs are themselves landlords, shamefully a lower proportion, but some Labour MPs are also landlords. Managing multiple properties, it should be said, so they have a vested interest there as well. But you know, there is an ideological but class-based opposition to the sorts of measures that the SNP are taking. So yes, the SNP are politically ambiguous. They've evolved with the times and quite opportunistically. But because of the pressures uh, within Scotland, which have succeeded in pushing an open door, you know, there's a difference in Westminster where you just have a government of landlords, by landlords, for landlords and of big businesses and by big businesses. So you've got a class-based ideological opposition in Westminster. That just isn't the same in Scotland at all.
0: Let's look a little further afield, because there have also been developments in the EU, in the European Union, that could give trust some ideas. This is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen.
1: In these times, profits must be shared and channeled to those who need it most. And therefore, our proposal also includes the fossil fuel electricity producers who have to give a crisis contribution. And overall, our proposal will raise more than 140 billion euros for member states to cushion the blow directly. These are all emergency and temporary measures we are working on, including our discussion on gas price caps.
0: The EU are saying that 140 billion euros of excess profits are to be taken from energy producers. And the question of energy price caps remains on the table. She also announced an overhaul of the energy market so that energy from renewables will be priced differently, more cheaply than energy from fossil fuels. Um, Owen, Liz Truss has said her reason for rejecting a windfall tax was that it would scare off investment. Does that mean the EU is just being foolish?
2: No, in fact, the energy companies themselves have said that this isn't about it wouldn't deter um, investment if there was a windfall tax. So, if even the energy companies are saying that. I think we can safely dismiss it. And 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 also, look, since 2010, uh, 200 billion pounds worth of those profits have gone into shareholder dividends, not to modernise the industry, not into new investment, not into you know clean energy and all the rest of it, just to shareholder dividend so if you're going to just go on the basis of the facts where has these profits gone over the past few years they've gone to shareholders what the energy companies themselves have said it's the same case we've we heard it with corporation tax the basis of the corporation tax cuts under uh, george osborne was that you would hand more money to these companies who would then invest it but all those companies did is stockpile i'm not just talking about energy companies i'm talking about all the companies they just stockpiled that money so you had huge stockpiling of profits which wasn't going into investment One of the reasons, if you look at a graph of productivity, productivity has stagnated in Britain for the last 12 years. That's one of the reasons we've had a protracted squeeze in living standards. And that's, again, because companies aren't investing their profits. Guess who called out the failure, of course, of corporation tax cuts? Rishi Sunak, he increased corporation tax or tried to on the basis that it hadn't increased investment as predicted. And the same goes for a windfall tax. There is no basis whatsoever based on what the fossil fuel companies are saying, but also based on what we can actually see has actually happened with previous tax cuts for those companies. So all they're going to do is just hand it to their shareholders. And it's really important we call that out because the, you know, some of the money they have used, has gone into a greenwashing campaign where energy companies have tried to make it look as though they're actually, you know, critical to the kind of transition that we all need. They recognise the climate emergency. But actually, these fossil fuel companies globally have spent huge amounts of money stalling policies which are meant to tackle the climate emergency lobbying against them so that's also how they use this money they use it to to lobby politicians including in Britain the British Conservative government they handed about a million pounds since the last election that's a pretty good investment because they're going to make a lot more from that because the Conservatives of course aren't going to tax their profits so it needs to be called out for what it is it's a complete lie it's bollocks the Conservatives know it's bollocks but of course you know former Shell employee Liz Truss knows which side her bread is buttered on. The Conservative government represents these interests very ably, and they have an ideological opposition, which is class-based. It's not based on any evidence. There isn't any.
0: The argument oh, all, of these, all these energy companies are doing is share buybacks, which makes their shareholders richer. You tell that to a Tory, they're like, what's the problem with that? That's great. We love that. They're the people who donate to us. Let's move straight on. We have a new king, Charles III, but what happens if he gets sick or goes on tour abroad? In that eventuality, one of his family members will step in to perform essential duties. They're what's called his councillors of state, and essentially they're stand-in monarchs. According to the palace website, councillors of state are authorised to carry out most of the official duties of the sovereign, for example, attending privy council meetings, signing routine documents, and receiving the credentials of new ambassadors to the United Kingdom. Normally, They would be the sovereign's spouse, plus the next four members in the line of succession over the age of 21. And now, third in line to the throne over the age of 21 is none other than Prince Andrew. Now, you might remember Andrew avoiding a New York civil case for the sexual assault of Virginia Dufresne while she was a minor. He paid her an estimated £12 million to go away. He was also good friends with Jeffrey Epstein, a paedophile and multiple sexual abuser who died while awaiting trial on a number of charges. And he was close chums with Epstein's sex trafficking sidekick, Gillian Maxwell, who is now serving a 20-year prison sentence in the US. Now, there's the possibility this man could be called up to step in for the king. After a settlement, obviously, with Geoffrey, you will know that Andrew was banished from public life. He no longer used the title His Royal Highness, and he was stripped of his honorary military roles and affiliations. But he still remained one of the Queen's councillors. Charles has decided and um, this is a situation which may continue. Owen... Lots has been made of the fact that, you know, Andrew is supposed to be stepping back from public life. He, he walks behind the funeral processions in a suit instead of in military gear. I've never really understood why the others wear military gear, because as far as I know, they've never really fought in the military. They just get handed it by the Queen. Anyway, he's lost his. He could now be, though, even though he's not, in the, not a public member of the royal, apparently, he could still be our stand-in king when Prince Charles goes abroad. It doesn't look very good, does it?
2: No, I mean, look, practically, it's, it's unlikely that would happen, I think, because the outrage would be so overwhelming, it could actually just destabilise the monarchy. I think, you know, they're not stupid for the monarchy, not completely stupid. They have endured for centuries because they've recognised how to survive in evolving times and keep you and I, people like you and I, with our Republican views, marginalised quite successfully. They have the establishment, obviously, to help them do that. But nonetheless, he's clearly their big Achilles heel. He's someone, obviously, who was close to a paedophile. He's someone who's paid out to a survivor of sexual violence. Money that was handed to him, partly bailed out by the dead queen. I'm sorry if some people find that distressing to point out facts. You should not speak ill of the dead. Well, you should certainly speak the truth, because otherwise history gets rewritten and revised and... That has pretty devastating consequences in terms of accountability and making sure things don't happen over and over and over again, which they tend to do because the establishment do unfortunately get away with anything. And that's the point about the establishment. It's a, you know, it's a it's a permanent kind of welfare state for the rich. you can you can never fall out of it. you 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 always have some levels of protection. obviously, Andrew will always have huge wealth and affluence beyond the dreams of the vast majority of humanity, but he also has certain public privileges which have not been stripped away. Some people will say, well, look, there's exceptions here. Everyone should be able to mourn their dead parents. Even prisoners who've committed heinous crimes are generally allowed to, to have mourning for those close to them, those they love, their parents, for example. But the fact is he has been granted certain public roles and theoretically has potentially sweep a sweeping public role, which, you know, the fact that that's still even theoretically possible just shows that the idea that these sorts of accusations ruin men's lives, Well, look at him on national television with all that pomp and still potentially a standing king. I think there are limits to that, aren't there? And I think this just goes to show that powerful men who are accused of terrible crimes can get away still with pretty much anything. They can still retain their privileges some of their theoretical powers and I think that sends from the monarchy a pretty distressing lesson to many survivors of sexual violence in this country.
0: I take your point that some people will get let out of prison to go to a funeral of sort of a a family member. I'm not sure if they could manage to wangle, you know, well I'm going to go to the funeral on Monday but the previous Monday I've got to walk around the streets of Scotland and then I'm also going to have to wander around with her for a couple of days in London. I'm actually going to need, you know, what is it, 10 days out of jail would be the argument there. Obviously, this guy was never found guilty of of anything, but you know, it it doesn't seem like he's getting a raw deal. He's getting more time in the limelight than I think, well, obviously than he deserves. And I think they're giving him more time in the limelight than would be appropriate. He can still mourn the Queen without constantly being on my TV screen. We've got Sky News on in here. He keeps popping up. Let's move on. We've got another story. As memorial events take place for the Queen, vast swathes of the country have been told to stop what they're doing or put their lives on hold. But in King Charles's former official residence, it's all change. Up to a hundred Clarence House staff have been told they could be about to lose their jobs. It's a message they received while they were working around the clock to smooth Charles's elevation to the throne. The Guardian report this. Private secretaries, the finance office, the communications team and household staff are among those who received notice during the Thanksgiving service for the Queen at St. Giles' Cathedral in Edinburgh on Monday that their posts were on the line. Many staff had assumed they would be amalgamated into the King's new household, claiming they were given no indication of what was coming until the letter from Sir Clive Alderton, the King's top aide, arrived. One source said, Everybody is absolutely livid, including private secretaries and the senior team. All the staff have been working late every night since Thursday to be met with this. People were visibly shaken by it. A Clarence House spokesperson has said they will be working to find alternative jobs for those whose current roles are no longer required, but they say some redundancies will be inevitable. The leader of the civil service union is not impressed, he said this. While some changes across the households were to be expected as roles across the royal family change, The scale and speed at which this has been announced is callous in the extreme. Least of all because we do not know what staffing the incoming Prince of Wales and his family might need. Oh, and it all seems pretty shabby, doesn't it?
2: It just sums it up, I think, quite acutely, the British class system, doesn't it, where privilege is worshipped. And yet, whilst we're, we're, we're told that we're in this period of national mourning and grief and uniting as a country, people are thrown onto the scrap heap at the very moment when that mourning is taking place. Look, I've had someone get in touch with me, which I'm going to write about, but, you know, their partner was involved in construction at Windsor Castle. On a Friday morning, after he went into work, they explained they had to close down the site due to mourning, as he's a contractor that meant no notice, no pay, just had to make the site secure and leave. I do understand to some degrees there was a lot going on at Windsor Castle, but for a young family, this has put us in dire straits and I feel resentment as this has nothing to do with us. I have respect for the deaf and old lady, but that's about it. We still need to eat. Look, these are real human beings with lives. And, you know, this idea... That, you know, in a period of national mourning, that normal life has to be suspended because everyone has to grieve. But as as we keep saying, people's living costs aren't suspended. Their need to live isn't suspended. Their children's needs aren't suspended. And yet, you know, because at the moment, people like us are of course, oh, we're indecent. How dare you? This isn't the time to complain. We're all uniting as a country. You know, tell that to someone like that, you know, whose partner just been thrown out of work with no notice from Windsor Castle because of an event that is completely out of their control, which they have no prior notice for whatsoever. You can't unite a country when you throw precarious workers onto the scrap heap and told that that's a necessary sacrifice in the name of national mourning. Rich people aren't making these sacrifices. The sacrifices in every national event like this are expected to fall, as ever, on the back of the royal subjects, those often it, it, who are consigned to the bottom of society for whom, you know, life is already very, very difficult and very hard. So I think this sums up, again, what happens, shines a light, I suppose, technicolor, in technicolor, on the fact that we have a low-paid, precarious workforce who are treated like shit in this country. Um, and, and that obviously continues and is accelerated when all of a sudden we're expected to, you know, doff our caps at the monarchy during a period of a national mourning.
0: I mean, I, f- I think you're absolutely right. This does shine lights on, on much sort of bigger structural problems of insecurity in the workplace. I think it also does, on a mundane level, you know, on a local level, how many millions of pounds are being spent on the ceremonies which we've been seeing over the past few days, over the past week, and it will be going until next Monday. How many hundreds of millions of pounds does this cost? And they can't just have some little pot of money here for contractors who've had to end their jobs early because of all of these celebrations or commemorations or whatever we want to call them? Like, how cheap do you have to be? Or how unthinking do you have to be? I think it's probably that latter. They haven't considered that. Well, this is the contract. Of course, we're going to cut it, right? How many other contracts have been broken this week because half of London has been shut down? You know what I mean? And then uh, they'll just throw people on the scrap heap. Up to 100 people work at Clarence House. If you're going to do some restructuring, just wait a month. Jesus Christ, do you know what I mean? Anyway, regardless of how Charles may or may not behave, a week of royal propaganda appears to be doing its work. A new poll from YouGov suggests 63% of the public think Charles will make a good king. Only 15% think he won't. And what's really interesting here is how this compares to when people were previously asked the same question. So from June 2019 to May 2022, there were never more than 39% of people who said Charles would make a good king. Around 30% of people consistently said he would not make a good king. But it's now a 65-15 split. That is a phenomenal transformation. Like Polls don't normally shift that dramatically. I mean, what do you make of this? Is this down to the success of the royal propaganda we've seen over the past week? Is this people feeling sympathy for someone who's lost their mother? Why have we seen this huge dramatic turnaround when it comes to how suitable people think Charles is to become king or to be king as he is now?
2: I think it's very unsurprising. I mean, look, I don't want to just reduce people in terms of their agency to just being pawns of the media. I think that's overly simplistic, but I mean you know it was quite an interesting study about immigration for example which the financial times did which showed that there was no correlation at all between hostility to immigrants uh, to migrants um, and and the level of immigration is higher immigration than ever but anti-migrant sentiment is actually very low by historic by historic levels but there is a correlation between anti-migrant sentiment and hostile pieces in the media now that seems a bit of a bizarre segue but the point i'm just making is it clearly the media and media coverage has a massive influence on people's views, their attitudes. And at the moment, it's just wall-to-wall coverage about the monarchy. It's been said, I guess the message being either explicitly or implicitly spread is if you're not actively showing some sort of grief or you're not taking part in any way in that morning, then that makes you kind of indecent and wrong and someone who hates your own country. I don't think genuinely that those people have seen Prince Charles's public appearances, which have been quite tetchy. Let's be honest with you, at least at least one of them is quite tetchy, aggressively tetchy towards, let's say, the underlings. I don't think people looked at that and went, do you know what? I've completely changed my mind. Oh, I thought he'd be rubbish before, but I think he's got like a bloody good king. People just think he's lost his mom. I feel that I should be involved in this national mourning. I feel like I'll be a bad person if I suddenly say what I thought about Charles. But to be honest with you, the polling's very clear. Before he became king, He's a far more divisive figure than the Queen. That's because the Queen, I think, cultivated a certain aloofness, which made it hard for Republicans like us to build up substantial opposition to the institution of monarchy. Let's be honest, she did public appearances where she didn't really say very much. Basically, her her presence and our lives were largely confined to the Christmas Address, which were Christmas speech, which were pretty platitudinous and inoffensive, normally speaking. Nothing much to rile anyone up. So she was quite, you know, she's covered in mystique and all the rest of it. She was a bit of an off-screen character in in her lives in lots of ways. But Charles is far more interfering, interventionist. He's got a history of meddling in politics. Uh, He clearly is tetchier and more easily provoked. Um, He has a back history, which is more controversial if we think about without going too heavily into people's private lives, we can't really help with the monarchy because they're in our faces all the time. But I think lots of people remember what happened with Diana and Camilla and all the rest of it. I don't think that sits well with lots of people. So I think, you know, at the moment there's hysteria, basically. Let's just be frank about it. People are being felt, made to feel, you've got to be mourning. Don't say anything bad about the monarchy. Be nice about someone who's grieving his mom. But I think that support that you've just seen the increase is very soft. And I think when he's bedded in, so to speak, as our king, and I think he's going to make quite a lot of missteps because I think already he's verging on missteps. I think a lot of those soft, sudden supporters or believers in him as a good king, I think are just going to go back to where they were before, which is not convinced by this guy in the way I quite like the queen. And I think the monarchy's lost their star player. I think if you look at younger people and people of colour, and obviously people of colour are growing in numbers, they're often younger as well, Um, there is very substantial support for a republic that's growing as those generations become, obviously they rise. And I think the monarchy's future, therefore, as the lid on a pressure cooker, is less firm on a more combustible pot because the tensions of British society have increased over the last few years and they've lost their star player. Public sympathy for the monarchy, support was already less enthusiastic than it was. Can King Charles III carry the monarchy in the same way? I don't think he'll end up like King Charles I, who obviously, there was a massive civil war and revolution, he was beheaded. But I do think he will find it much harder to sustain the level of passive enthusiasm that the Queen had.
0: The royal household it hasn't been very good at expectation management this this week. So like, I feel like even though the crowds are big, they, they keep saying they're bigger than they are, if they set success as there not being a revolution and him being beheaded, and um, I think he can probably achieve that. Um, so they can count that as a win. Let's go to our final story. The blanket coverage of the Queen's passing has led to complaints that other issues like the cost of living crisis have been ignored. But one columnist at The Times thinks there's no need to draw such a sharp distinction between tackling the cost of living and talking about our late monarch. Because as millions of Britons struggle to pay their energy bills, Alice Thompson has declared this. The Queen's 1950s frugality is key to our future. As the cost of living crisis bites, we'll need to learn the satisfaction of thrift and recycling over endless consumer binges. The article reads, The Royal Yacht Britannia could never be called a super yacht, with its formica surfaces, teas made, and narrow single beds covered with thin blankets for the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. There were no gold taps or submarines, just wicker baskets for the corgis. But the Queen said it was the one place where she could truly relax. When the yacht was commissioned in the 1950s, Her Majesty turned down the initial design as too lavish. She wanted simplicity and would disembark for picnics with the Tupperware on remote beaches in the Western Isles. So a good cost of living tip there. In your yacht, do not install golden taps. Yachts are perfectly sailable and without golden taps. Very important tip. Other examples of the Queen's frugality involve her driving a Land Rover instead of a Range Rover, another good money-saving tip, and renting out the cottages on one of her many estates via Air b Thompson concludes, in this age of Amazon Prime and Kim Kardashian-style super-rich spending, her frugality may seem quaint. But with the government ready to announce an emergency financial statement next week, it feels timely. As the cost-of-living crisis hits, everyone is looking for ways to cut back. Taking a furnace of coffee to work, eating leftovers for lunch, and sewing on lost buttons. So sewing on lost buttons is one option. The other option is not installing gold taps in your yacht. So yes, that's one way to avoid poverty. Tone down the decor on your yacht and rent out your cottages. Who knew it would be so simple? But it's not just on finances that we're being told to take inspiration from the queen, who, thanks to her bloodline, was worth 370 million. According to this Mail Online feature, the Queen can also teach us how to save the environment. So they write, Despite having access to private chefs, the Queen was known for keeping a simple diet consisting of local produce and meat with low food miles. She was also frugal, reusing wrapping paper, keeping furniture for decades, holidaying in Scotland, and re-wearing outfits. But the Queen's efforts go beyond wearing outfits more than once. According to the Mail, throughout her 70-year reign, the Queen regularly planted commemorative trees. This included a, a, a tree in Windsor Great Park in 1953 to commemorate her coronation, a tree in Christchurch during her Silver Jubilee tour on New Zealand in 1977, and an oak tree in Hatfield House during her Diamond Jubilee tour in 2012. So we can all, we can all take inspiration. We could be planting trees In London and in New Zealand, sounds like a very efficient way to protect the climate. And it's not just her relation to trees, but also her relationship to animals, which should inspire us. So the queen, the male online, right, had an affection for animals from a young age. She was an avid dog lover, regularly seen with her pack of corgis, as well as an accomplished horse rider. A range of exotic animals were also presented to the queen over the years, ranging from an elephant to two giant tortoises. The male also celebrates King Charles for running a car on byproducts from wine and cheese. Owen, is this how we survive the cost of living crisis and save the planet in the process? Two birds in one stone.
2: So bloody frugal, aren't they? They really did just skimp and save, didn't they? They might have been handed all this privilege, but they didn't rub it in our faces in any shape or form. Go to your local pound savers. Oh, there's the blood. That's Queen Liz over there. She's in the... Just it. yeah, I mean, obviously, this is it's just trolling on an epic scale. I mean, the monarchy, if you look at you know because there's the argument they bring in tourism they pay for themselves, which I've already covered is is, is a myth. Royal tourism attractions are, are very low down the list of reasons why people come to Britain. um but the you know, the Irish presidency costs one percent of the monarchy, and you know there's a very widely respected Irish president. It's very effective in terms of what it does. The monarchy is just bloody, expensive. It's hugely expensive in terms of its upkeep, I think it does show as well the sorts of worlds that some of these columnists, uh, I have to say, live in. If you look at background of columnists and newspaper journalists in the national media, according to the government's own figures, or you look at the Sutton Trust, which looks at this, you know, they're overwhelmingly, or sorry, just dis- over half are privately educated when only 7% go to private school in the country as a whole. So these are often people from very privileged backgrounds who, who are used to mixing with people from very privileged backgrounds, whose view of what is frugal is very skewed in a very unrealistic direction. This is class-based perspectives and loyalty which infect the British media, that people who are from very privileged backgrounds and mixed with other people from privileged backgrounds. I remember um, there was an anecdote about Tony Blair, and he, he one of his advisors, there was a discussion with one of his advisors, and he thought the median income in Britain was £18,000 about £25,000 an hour. This was many years ago when it was even lower. It just goes to show that people with, from very privileged backgrounds, they look at the monarchy and clearly what most of us would look at if we were being honest is a very privileged institution dripping with huge amounts of unearned privilege. Whether or not people support the monarchy or not, it's just an objective fact. But if you're looking through a lens of someone from a very privileged background, you, you might come to a different conclusion.
0: I just love the idea that you, know, you could ask so what, what, what did you do uh, for climate change well I did once get gifted an elephant so what's the relevance of that that's not I, I can't see how I you know, imagine keeping an elephant as a pet is actually pretty bad for the environment I haven't uh, done the maths on that let's wrap up there Owen I mean, it's been a pleasure being joined by you again always an honour we are going to wrap up there we'll be back on Friday at 7pm for now you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.